The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, October 6th, 2019, on the basis of Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. It is amazing how quickly something very simple can get very, very complicated. One area of life where this is certainly true is when it comes to politics. In my house, I'm the one that sort of pays pretty close attention to politics, and Lindsay, well, not quite as much. And so this past week, she asked me to try and explain to her this story that everyone has been talking about for the past several weeks. She asked me to try and explain it. Not mansplain it, but just explain it. And so I I tried my best. And I would have loved it if I could have just said to her, well, our president called up another president on the phone, and now a lot of people think he deserves to be impeached. But if you pay attention to politics, and if you've been following the news, you know that that doesn't really do the story justice. If you're going to explain that story, you can't just mention Donald Trump and Vladimir Zelensky. You probably also need to mention a bunch of other people, people like Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. You probably need to mention this oil company in Ukraine called Burisma. You probably need to mention Nancy Pelosi and Rudy Giuliani and Adam Schiff and probably Mike Pompeo too. And you need to explain all kinds of terms, terms like whistleblower complaint and quid pro quo and impeachment inquiry and House Intelligence Committee. I think it took me 15 minutes to answer that very simple question from my wife, Lindsay. It's amazing how quickly. Something pretty simple can get very, very complicated. And this isn't just true with politics. It's also true with religion. When it comes to discussions about religion, there are almost as many, maybe even more, names and terms that you need to keep straight. There are dozens of different doctrines and hundreds of different denominations that you need to try and understand. And so it's no wonder that some people, just like they sort of throw up their hands and want nothing to do with politics, it's no wonder why some people do the very same thing with religion. Well, do you know who's really good at taking things that have gotten very, very complicated and making them simple once again? Jesus is. In fact, that's kind of the the whole goal of this series that we're starting today, to take things that have maybe gotten a little bit complicated and make them simple once again, to try and navigate through all of the noise that sometimes comes up in discussions about faith and religion and God and try and really get to the heart of it. And I'm glad that we're starting with the story that's in front of us today because I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus told this story and it's about exactly two guys. Not three, not five, not ten, but two. In fact, it occurred to me this week just how many times Jesus told stories that were just about two people. And in each and every case, it's Jesus' way of saying, these are your two options. You're either this guy or you're this guy. This isn't like the cheese aisle at the grocery store where there are options from wall to wall and floor to ceiling. This isn't like when you ask someone what you think is a very simple yes or no question and the first words out of their mouth are, well, on the one hand, and you know you're in for a long haul. No, Jesus makes it very, very simple. As we look at these verses from Luke chapter 16 today, we're going to see that everyone is one of these two men, one of these two men in Jesus' story. So Jesus starts out with their profiles. 
First, there's this rich man, and Jesus says that he dresses himself in purple clothing and fine linen. You maybe know that in ancient times, purple dye was ridiculously expensive. And so the only reason you would ever wear purple clothing is just to let other people know how rich you were. This wasn't like camouflage as hunters get ready for another deer season or a a nice goose down jacket as we brace for another Wisconsin winter. In other words, there was no functionality of purple clothing that made it better than any other type of clothing. The only reason you wore it was to let everyone know how wealthy you are. Not only that, but Jesus says that this guy lived luxuriously each and every day. Every day in his house was a party. He had the money to do it, and so he did it. Well, then there was this poor man whose name was Lazarus. And Jesus tells us that Lazarus was laid at the gate of this rich man's house. In other words, he wasn't even able to get himself there. Other people had to carry him there and put him there. Jesus tells us that unlike the rich man who dined on gourmet food each and every day, this poor man named Lazarus longed to fill his stomach with even just the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. And finally, we hear that his body is covered in sores and the dogs come and lick at them. These are the two men Jesus talks about in this story. And maybe at this point you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I'm either one of those guys. Don't be distracted by the details. Remember again that we need to get to the heart of it. We need to really find out what makes each one of these men tick. So for this rich guy, much more than just being wealthy, this rich man lived only for himself. His entire life's mission was to gain glory for himself. He used every ounce of his effort and every penny of his wealth in service to himself, so much so that even though there was a guy in great need right outside his gate, he completely ignored him. What that means is that in order to be like this rich man, you don't actually have to be rich. Your profile might look a little bit different. You don't have to be rich guy. You might be work guy, you might be academics guy, you might be sports guy or car guy, you might be friends girl or popularity girl, you might be mom of the year girl or volunteer of the month girl. It really doesn't matter what your profile looks like. You don't have to be a rich man to be like this rich man. Really what makes someone like him is that they spend their lives living, trying to gain glory for themselves. And in the very same way, you don't have to be poor to be like this poor man. In contrast to the rich man who lived to gain glory for himself, the poor man lived to give glory to God. Now, how in the world do we know that? Normally, when we think of someone whose entire life's mission is to give glory to God, we think of someone who who goes to church all the time, who reads their Bible and prays every day, someone who helps little old ladies cross the street. And we don't hear that, we don't hear any of that about this man named Lazarus. What we do hear is that his name is Lazarus. Did you know that out of all the stories Jesus ever told, this is the one and only time he gives a character in the story a name. I think that's worth paying attention to. And when we pay attention to it, we notice that this name Lazarus is actually a shortened version of a Hebrew name, Eliezer, which means God is my help. 
God is my help. What made this poor man who he really was was not that he was poor, but that he lived with God as his help. He knew that he was helpless, but he also knew that God provided everything that he needed. So what that means is that you don't have to be poor in order to be like this poor man. In fact, you could be very rich. You could be rich and famous and powerful and successful, but, but to be like Lazarus, you would still realize that all of those things, as nice as they are, don't make you any less helpless. In fact, we might think of it this way. Picture a, a car that has a sleek, shiny exterior, a car that's got heated leather seats and voice-activated everything, and so many cameras mounted around the outside that it beeps and flashes if you get within half a mile of a little squirrel. A car that's got all the bells and whistles, but a car whose engine is absolutely dead. The bells and whistles are nice, but they do nothing to solve our biggest problems before God. Being like this man, Lazarus, means realizing that no matter all the different ways in which God may have blessed us, we are still helpless before him. We still deserve to be thrown to the scrapyard, just like a fancy car that doesn't run. What makes Lazarus who he is is that he lives to give all glory to God, and he does that by making God his help. So two men, and Jesus starts by giving us their profiles. Then he tells us about their outcomes. In other words, he starts by telling us how each man lived. Then he tells us how each man died. This time he started with Lazarus. He says that when Lazarus died, the angels came and carried him up to heaven. Kind of interesting that while he was living, he needed to be carried and set at the gate of this rich man's house. And then when he died, he was again carried by God's angels up to heaven. And then when he got there, he took his place at Abraham's side. Now, the specific word that Jesus uses there lets us know that these, these two guys weren't just standing next to each other in heaven. That's kind of how I always pictured it. But they were actually reclining. In other words, they were dining at a table together. They were enjoying a feast together. So this poor man, who during his life had longed to fill his stomach with just the crumbs that came from the rich man's table, now he's in heaven enjoying a banquet that never ends. Then Jesus tells us about the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried, but he goes to a place that's far, far from heaven. He goes to a place of agony and torment. He goes to a place that he describes as being characterized by fire. This rich man dies and goes to hell. And what Jesus wants us to realize as he tells us the outcome of both of these men is that what seemed to be true in their life is completely reversed in their death. In fact, even the way that Jesus communicates this or the way he tells the story kind of communicates this, he first of all tells us about the rich man's life, then Lazarus's life, then he flips it and tells us about Lazarus's death and then the rich man's death. It's just a complete and total reversal. So here you get the outcomes. And here's also another area where there's lots of opportunity for distraction, lots of opportunity for things to get complicated. Anytime in a religious discussion the topics of heaven and hell come up, there's all kinds of questions that arise. Are those really two real places? How do we know who's going to go to which one? If we go to heaven, are we going to be sort of flying around with angels or with, with wings playing harps, wearing white togas with halos hovering over our head. 
if we go to hell, is it really going to be like this eternal, unbearable furnace that never comes to an end? And, and would a loving God really send people there? Again, don't be distracted by the details. Pay attention to what's at the heart of it. Believe it or not, both of these men had something very, in co- very much in common in terms of their eternal outcome. Both of them died and got exactly what they had wanted while they were alive. So starting with Lazarus again, he lived making God his help. He lived giving all glory to God. And when he died, that's exactly what he got. God was his help. God sent the angels to take him to Abraham's side. And then he enjoyed this banquet where he was waited on hand and foot for all eternity. In the very same way, the rich man who had lived to gain glory only for himself he too got in his death exactly what he had wanted in his life. Did you know that when the Bible talks about God's ultimate judgment against sin, it, it kind of talks about it in these terms. So if, if we are bound to live only for ourselves, God starts out by trying to stand in the way. God gets in the way of those intentions and gets our attention, and sometimes that even hurts a little bit like you would expect a slap upside the head to hurt a little bit. We might be tempted to think that that is God's judgment, but actually it's not. That's discipline. That's God trying to get our attention and trying to stand in the way of this destructive path that we're on. So at first God gets in the way, but then when the Bible talks about God's ultimate judgment against sin, if we are still intent on living only for ourselves and our own glory, eventually God gets out of, our, out of the way. God lets us have for all eternity exactly what we want in this life. And that's what hell is. It's a place where God gets out of the way so that we can spend the rest of eternity living for ourselves. And if that sounds horrifying, it is. In fact, maybe you'll notice in the parable that even after this man had died and gone to hell, he didn't change one bit. He was exactly the same guy. He looks up at Lazarus and he starts asking for favors and ordering him around. Send down Lazarus just to, to dip a little drop of water on the tip of my tongue so that I can cool down. He doesn't express any remorse. Doesn't even ask to get out. Doesn't ask if he can enter into heaven. He simply wants everyone else to serve him to make him feel just a little bit better. He hasn't changed one bit. So two guys, Jesus tells us their profile. Jesus tells us their outcome. And maybe we would expect that that would be the end of the story. But it's not. And there's a reason it's not. It's because as much as this story is about these two men, the story is not for these two men. Just like when someone dies and we maybe gather together as family and friends for a funeral or a memorial service, that event might be about that person, but it it can't really be for that person anymore, can it? Instead, it's for everyone else. It's for the survivors. And in this story that Jesus told, we learn that there are some survivors. The rich man has five brothers who are still living. And so the rich man asks if Lazarus can be sent to go to them so that they don't end up in the same place he is. Abraham responds by saying, well, they have Moses and the prophets. That's all they need. The rich man says, no, I I don't think so. You need to send someone back from the dead to warn them, and then they'll repent. Abraham says, no, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then even that is not going to work. 
See, there's a reason Jesus wants to tell this story about these two different guys. There's a reason he wants us to realize that every single person in all the world is one of these two. It's a story about them, but it's a story for the survivors. It's a story for people who are still living and who still have time. In other words, it's a story for us. So what is going to convince us to live like the one guy and not the other? What is going to convince us to spend our lives living not to gain glory for ourselves, but to give glory to God and to make him our help? Might I suggest that we're not going to be scared into it. In other words, just like this rich man, we might think that if only someone could go and then come back and tell us what happens and tell us what it's like, then, then we would be fully convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt. In fact, it's no surprise that you're probably aware that there's really almost an entire industry of books, a lot of them that have come out very re- recently, that tell stories of people who claim to have done that very thing, claim to have died and now live and, and want to tell about it. So let me ask, does that seem to be changing a lot of people's minds about God? Does that seem to be taking a lot of people who are intent on living only for themselves and suddenly convincing them to live only for God? Is that taking churches that would otherwise be empty and suddenly filling them up with crowds of people? As far as I can tell, it's not. So if that's not going to work, what is? Well, Jesus points us to another book. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. We'd say, they have the Bible. Boy, talk about something that's complicated, right? Have you seen how big this book is? I mean, who, who's really read the whole thing? Who can really say what it's all about? Who can definitively say what it means? Let me help you out. From cover to cover, from the first word to the last, that book is about one thing. It's about Jesus. It's about how God looked out at a world full of sinners and sent his son, Jesus. It's about how God looked out at a world full of people who naturally and inescapably live only for their own glory and he sent Jesus to be the one person who could completely and perfectly live for the glory of God. It's about how that Jesus then took our guilt and our sentence as if it were his own and how that Jesus took his holiness and his perfection and gave it to us as if it were ours. It's about how Jesus willingly switched places. How even though he was the one person ever who lived fully and completely like Lazarus, he was willing to accept the outcome of that rich man paying for our sins with his death on the cross. From cover to cover, from the first word to the last, this is a book that is about Jesus, which is to say that from cover to cover, from the first word to the last, this is a book that is about help, about the help that we need and the help that our God so graciously offers. What's going to convince us to live in such a way that we make God our help? The book that tells us that God is our help. You know, I I wish that we could take that hymn that we just sang before the sermon and sing it one more time not only because it's one of my favorite hymns of all time, but also because I think you would notice, if you sang it again, how it is really based on and uses a lot of imagery from this story that Jesus told, specifically verse 3. 
we're actually going to hear that hymn played during the offering without any, any words attached to it. And so I would strongly encourage you to actually open up your hymnals back out, open up to hymn 434, and follow along, verse 3 especially, as it's played during the offering. A man by the name of Martin Schalling wrote that hymn way back in 1567, 450 years ago. And when he did, right next to the title of the hymn, he put a heading. It said, For the Dying. For the dying, we hear that heading and we're maybe tempted to think of people who are well, a little bit older, perhaps people who are sick, maybe even people who are on their deathbed. That's all of us, isn't it? The dying. I mean, yes, I suppose you could say that right now we are living, but really from day one of our lives, we are dying. And so that hymn, just like this story, is for us. It's for people who still have time. It's for people who otherwise would be utterly helpless. It's for people who, in God, have all the help they need. Amen.